Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll today. Actor and comedian Rob Schneider. He's got a brand new Netflix stand-up comedy special called Asian Mama, Mexican Kids. It's very funny. And Rob even does a duet at the, at the end with his daughter, a singer L. King. It's 45 minutes long. You'll be laughing the whole time. Uh, check it out on Netflix now. It was inspired by Rob's life. He'll share some stories about that. Also talking a lot about his time on SNL some of the classic characters he created and what it was like working with the late, great Chris Farley and what Chris was really like when the cameras weren't rolling. And, you know, Bill Murray didn't like Chris Farley. Rob talks about that as well. And, of course, Rob has tons of stories about all the movies he's made, including Deuce Bigelow, The Hot Chick, The Animal, and, of course, all his great cameos in Adam Sandler movies like The Waterboy, Fifty First Dates, Grown Ups. He's been in too many to name them all. He talks about uh, inventing the "You Can Do It" a slogan that probably haunts him to this day. Lots of great stories from Rob Schneider coming up next, and so is a new episode of the Winnipeggers Thursday at nine Eastern on my YouTube channel and my Facebook page. Uh, this week, I think we're going to be talking about uh, heroic moments, and maybe next week will be high school fights and uh, confrontations. So always fun stuff with Ribo and Speewee. And, of course, don't miss the return of the Saturday special this Saturday night, a little bit later than usual after the AEW All Out pay-per-view, so probably around 11 p.m. or so. Watch All Out on the BR Live or the Fight TV uh, apps, and then come uh, talk to me about it on the Saturday night special Facebook Live and my YouTube channel after All Out uh, on Saturday night with the, of course, Mimosa Mayhem match. So I've got lots of Jericho this week and uh, lots of Rob Schneider. Let's get laughing. Making his talk as Jericho debut starting now. Bill. Billy. The Billster. Bill Man. Billy Bill Bill. The name is Randy. Randy. The Randster. Only one copy for the Rand Man. Randy. How you doing, champion? I'm good, man. How are you? I see you got a, a Band-Aid on. Yeah, I'm hanging in there. That's that's just. I wish I could have one for my entire soul at this point. It's kind of the way that it's been going. With uh, we, we could just jump right in this with with the way with such a strange year all across the board. I long for the days of the flat and the curve. Remember that? Yeah, it's supposed to be 15 days, right? And no one, you know, I remember back in 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 March when all this happened. It'd be like, well, you know, let's do it for a couple of weeks and. You know, by April, we'll all be through all this and it'll all be done. Like you said, flattening the curve. Yeah. Boy, were we wrong. <laughs> yeah. How is it for you? Like, obviously, you're a busy guy as well and kind of have everything shut down. No, no, everything stopped. I mean, everything is around. I mean, they're starting to film in Europe. I got a call this, uh, yesterday uh-huh. that they're shooting in um, Eastern Europe and Italy. And every every country has their own rules. So, you know, they're up and going, which is good news. Because people are shooting, it's just kind of it's a little more difficult. I think the last place to really get going, I think, is going to be the U.S. and maybe the U.K. to get shooting. It's interesting though when you're talking. I was just looking. I was watching Netflix last night, and I was thinking, like, in about six months from now, all of those shows will be gone, and there'll be nothing for like a whole eight months or year, whatever. Right? No, they they'll they're going to do something. You know? Yeah. The comedy special I just did. Well, I mean, literally just got right under the wire. I think it was like literally the last comedy special filmed. When did you film it? February 29th. 
Wow. Okay. That, yeah. that, Cause our last live show was March 11th. So you're right under the wire before everything just got locked down and was finished. Cause I think everybody, um, kind of shut it down by, uh, by around the 10th, right? Or the 11th, it was over. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. So you're saying, this special is really cool. I want to talk about it, obviously. I love the title of the Asian Mama Mexican Kids. But it's, it's great because I, it's just to jump right in and start talking about it. It's such a cool, like, bite-sized, 45-minute piece of comedy. And a lot of people haven't seen you do stand-up in a while. Well, a lot of people don't even know that I did stand-up. I mean, that was the, the thing about, like, why I wanted to do this now was... Um, you know, just as a, uh, you know, a document to show that this is, this is how I started. I mean, I started out at the same time as Chris Rock and Adam Sandler and David Spade. And I just, I only got back into it. I mean, it's been 10 years since I've been doing stand-up again. And I just wanted to, you know, record it. And, and Netflix was nice enough to give me a, a special. And yeah, it's just long enough. I mean, if you can't say what you need to say in 45 minutes, then, you know, you got to do something else with your life. Especially watching it, uh, you know, as, as a special, like if you're actually at the venue, because actually the last time I saw Seinfeld live a couple of years ago, he went like 45 minutes. It was very much same idea. Yeah. Just get it in, get it up. And let people, people are thinking, you know, especially if you're seeing somebody in a theater, you're thinking about how long it's going to take to get home, the car, mm-hmm. you know, where you parked, how <laughs> dark it was. Somebody broke into the car, right? you know, where, you, you know, <laughs> who you're going to call to come pick you up or like. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, there's it's a little more political dodgy era right now. So there's some more stuff that I didn't include in the comedy special that maybe uh, it's such a sensitive time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that people are so overreactive and I just didn't want to give people a reason to get upset. You know? Yeah. It's funny because even watching it and you do such great voices and imitations and like you know, like your wife or your mother-in-law, they always have accents, even if they don't have accents, which is... Yeah, I heard somebody on the internet say, like, you can't do accents anymore. And they're like, what? Yeah. Well, even the whole thing with with the Chinese food, which is hilarious. I mean, that, that's, I grew up with that. My Ch- I mean, that's, I mean, I actually, in the special, I actually speak Cantonese. That's just Ch- Chinese accent. That is Chinese. That's like, uh, <laughs> you know, for my friends who are from Hong Kong and they had the restaurant. You know, it's like, I, I don't know. I don't know what they want. Right. And it's not the Chinese people who are, who are upset about it. You know, I, I bet, you know, the, my friends are Chinese. So well, I didn't know he's, he, he knows a, he, a few sentences in, in uh, Cantonese, you know, but it's usually like, you know, people who are, who, who aren't the et- specific ethnicity, it's usually some like white girl in Oregon is like pissed off and I'm doing an accent that, you know, it's actually a specific friend of mine. But anyway, it, it's just a, you can't worry about it too much. You have to be aware of it. That is, this is a problem, but you can't like let it stop you, you know? And, and at the same time, I'm here there to get laughs. You remember John Cleese saying this about four years ago when I went out and flew to go see him. I'm such a huge fan. Yeah, me too. Him and Eric Idle were doing his show and I flew out to go see him and he said a beautiful thing. I'll never forget. He said, the most sensitive members of society can't be the ones deciding what everybody else gets to listen to or watch. <laughs> it's like, it's true. Right. If it's bothering you, don't watch it, but don't try to stop me from doing it or stop somebody else from enjoying it. If it's mean spirited, then, you know, mm-hmm. it's different. If you're trying to hurt people, if you're just getting a laugh and just expressing something that happened to you in your life, I mean, these are true, true stories for the most part, exaggerated true stories. Even when you're talking about John Cleese, I'm a huge faulty towers fan. Oh yeah, I think a 
couple months ago, they, they, they took down the Germans ex, uh, episode They kind of buried that. I saw that. Even he commented on that. Like, yeah, he did. And obviously it, it was made in the mid seventies and it's a different type of humor, but it's still super hilarious. And at the end, Basil, who is, who is the, the, the main character that, that please plays in faulty towers. If, if people listening haven't seen it, he's the ultimate idiot. And every time he ends up getting screwed because he's, he's, he's almost like an English Archie bunker, so to speak. Yes, exactly. And, and like the guy, the producer of that Faulty Towers, uh, he's a real brilliant guy. He said the best description of it, he said, what makes the best sitcoms, situation comedies, are horrible people <laughs> acting horribly. That's right. <laughs> because it's different. You don't see it all the time and you can just let, relax and go, hey, well, my life sucks, but look at this guy, you know? Yeah. Uh, but so they talked about the German stuff. And I'm sorry, the Germans... Were Nazis. I mean, they were. I mean, uh, most of them at a certain point in history, from 1933 to 1945 and maybe 47 in like uh, Argentina. Well, the thing is, Basil gets hit on the head with a giant moose head, and when he gets hit on the head with the moose head, he kind of starts zipping back and forth between these Germans who are guests in his hotels that are not Nazis, <laughs> and he says, "He don't say the word." I think I said it once, but I think I got away with it. And the word, of course, is Nazi. It's so funny. Oh, no, it's brilliant. No, well, they've already tried to stifle so much mm-hmm. of what's happening right now in popular culture that they have to go back in time and fix the historical anti-woke art yeah. and literature and pop culture. So, I mean, I remember, like, I knew the cat was out of the bag when um, – Somebody was attacking John Wayne from an interview right. that he did in 1972. And it's like, this guy's been dead since 1977. You know, so I said, boy, you're really digging the bottom of the barrel. But I also think, like, if you look at bloggers, which is what most of these people are, and I don't say that derisively, but I do. I mean it derisively in my heart. The fact of the matter is you have to write, like, 10 or 12 articles to make a decent living and sell it a month, mm-hmm. you know, to hope to eke by. And so it's whatever you can get and whatever's selling. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like whatever, whatever the thing is that people, they think that, you know, it's going to grab some eyeballs. The clickbait. And yeah. And I think it'll fade. I mean, I hope it will. Here's my friend. Yeah. Uh, hi. <laughs> yes. How can I do? Um, I was wondering, can I get a little more juice for the sandwich? You like the juice, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know. The juice is good, eh? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh... <laughs> I get you more juice. Okay, great, thanks. Well, and, and once again, Kevin, how this all started is we was talking about you when you're, you're, you're talking about the Chinese food restaurants are always open. And, they, like, I spent a lot of time in, in Japan, which is not the same as China, but also you're nailing the accent perfectly. That's where the comedy comes from, noodle. To me, the um, Cantonese is very sing-songy, and it's fun. Mm-hmm. You know, so yamu gaucho is how you say that. You know, you say like gao and then gao is two different meanings. Oh, wow. One is rope. The other one is dick. <laughs> and like, that's just. You got to be careful with that one. Yeah. As soon as you learn that out, you know, you go to a hardware store, you got to be careful what you ask for. <laughs> Can I get some gao? You know? And like, I just remember like, that, that was the stuff that like I loved to listen to when I was a kid, you know? And then. And there was a, you know, Chinese restaurant that we used to go to and, and on Washington Street. And it was open till anybody leaves, you know, f- like at least three in the morning. 
sometimes on the weekends, five, you know, and they would serve this thing called cold tea, which was beer. <laughs> and as soon as we were old enough teenagers to go into the city, because they changed the drinking laws from 18 to 21 in like Hawaii. And that's where I spent a lot of my life there. And so when I was back in San Francisco, which is, uh, I spent the summers in Hawaii, which is great. Mm -hmm. In San Francisco, we'd go to this place in Sam Woe's on Washington Street, and we'd get the brown tea. And they didn't know how old we were, you know? (laughs) And I'm sorry, it's because they look at us and they don't know how old we are. They look at, we all look the same. I'm telling (laughs) you, it's like, they just, they don't know what's a kid, what's older, what's 16, what's 21. And so it was a thing where, you know, they would serve us. And and then eventually the guy got wise to it and said, like, these guys are underage. Mm-hmm. But they used to serve it in brown tea, which is like a little plastic cup. It wasn't a beer. So that, I think they knew. Right. Yeah. But then they didn't want to get busted. And who's going to go to Chinatown at 3 o'clock in the morning? What with, you know, <laughs> alcoholic beverage people going to go? And so it was like a little tea container that had beer in it. And it was like the greatest for, for us like any cheating or whatever we could do. And of course, and uh, I'm sure it was watered down or whatever beer, but we were just happy to just be getting Chinese food and having beer at two in the morning or three in the morning. And when you're 16, it was the greatest time of my life. Is that where you learned how to speak the Cantonese that you know? I learned some Cantonese when I did a movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme in Hong Kong. I talked to the Choi Hark, Choi. Mm-hmm. He's a great Chinese director and uh, he made Chinese opera blues and Chinese ghost stories. Really great, great director. And so I was going to do this movie. And I remember like <laughs> the, the guys, it was like um, Moshe Diamond was the producer. And he said, it's a $22 million movie we're doing. It's $22 <laughs> million. And then they said, all right, uh, whatever. And then by the time we got over to Hong Kong, it's an $8 million movie. <laughs> and he said, what happened to the $22 million? I don't know. It's gone. <laughs> And so by the time we shot it, maybe it was a $2 million movie or a $4 million movie. I don't know. Right, right. This is knockoff, it was called? Knockoff? Yeah, and it was a blast. I, mean, I had, I, that's, I mean, I've had a lot of fun in my life. And that, that was one of the highlights, was being there during the handover when England handed back Hong Kong to the Brits. It was an unbelievable time to be there. And I was there, and, you know, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Sean Connery. It was, it was an amazing time to be uh, there. But the director was a really interesting guy, Choi Hart. Very energetic, great guy. He would um, shoot all day, and then he'd ask us to go out to dinner. He would eat a huge meal and with a lot, drink a lot of tea and a lot of alcohol, and then go out to the club after, and then show up at work at five o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. five thirty, first person there. And then I did it for a couple of nights, and then like I, you know, you start to look like crap. You're on camera, and then. You're tired. You got to memorize your lines. And I was like, hey, I can't do this anymore. I love you, but I can't. He said, no, 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 no. And I go, how's this guy getting sleep? And well, I don't understand. And then like, he always wore these between setups, you know, he, uh, directing, he always wore these really big, thick sunglasses, you know. And I once snuck up behind him when he was sitting down between setups on the movie. I snuck up to him and went, hey, Choi. And I heard this. <laughs> He was asleep between setups. It was unbelievable. So I went out, but when I was out to dinner with him, I said, come on, teach me something Cantonese I can say to these people. I can pull a joke on the waiter. What's a joke? And he said, said when you ask for the check, you say, Yamu Gaolun Chua. And I never forgot that. And I said, what, what does it mean? He says, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> so Lun is 
in, in Cantonese. <laughs> so are you kidding me? Is Yamo Gao Chua? Yamo Gao Chua. And then are you fucking kidding me? Is Yamo Gao Lun Chua? And so I got said, can I get the check? And I look at it and go, and I, the waiter's right there and I go, Yamo Gao Lun Chua. <laughs> He's, he's, I'm like a white devil to him that I spoke, you know, because <laughs> right. I got a pretty good ear. So, yeah. Anyway, so I don't know. And to me, it's just the little stories. I mean, fame comes and goes, money comes and goes, houses can come and go, mm-hmm. women can come and go, God knows. <laughs> but uh, the stories you get to keep. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. You've had such a, a, a varied career with so many, like you mentioned, like I filmed this movie with Van Damme in Hong Kong. It's just like throwing it out there, one of like 50 movies that you've done starring in some minor parts and others, but there's been a, a huge body of work that you've enjoyed. It's been fun. I mean, truthfully, there's been no career guidance. There's been no <laughs> career thought, yeah. you know, it's just working, you know I mean? I just like to make a living as an actor is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an absolute uh, rarity. Mm-hmm. You know, there's 50,000 actors in LA alone, you know, so to make a living, as an actor is, is all, it was the goal in everything as a comedian, as an actor, whatever you could. And then to make a really good living is even rarer still. And then, and then to become like a, a movie star is very few people on the history of the world that have, have had that opportunity. Well, and you, you were even leading man for, for a few of those too. You're talking about Deuce Bigelow and then that was Rob Schneider is Deuce Bigelow. I know those are fun times. You know, I think I got a, <laughs> I got one or two more of those. I'm going to try to go for it now that, uh, you know, <laughs> but we'll see. It's been, it's been a fun ride. Honestly, it's been, uh, if you're lucky enough to get the shot at it, it's great. It comes with a lot of negativity attached to it because there's a lot of people want to doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know what that's like though, too. Of course. You just have to focus on what it is that you love and then let the rest go away. Well, well the thing is too, and, and you'll, you know, I kind of want to hear your take on this. Like you come from this great, group of comedians you came up through the same way when you're talking about chris rock and spade and obviously sandler being one of the biggest movie stars in the world and you're his buddy that's in a lot of his films as well seems like you guys really have stuck together over the years since you started together saturday night live or even before that yeah well i i think it's um maybe the rarest thing in, in show business is to have a, a group of guys that you that you can stick with and they stick by you for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's ups and downs in this business is, is, um, you know, if you have a couple of too many downs, it's over, you know, as far as getting a chance to make movies, you know, I remember talking to Chris Rock about that when we were doing uh, grownups and, you know, I said, they won't tell you when you're off the list, <laughs> yeah, but right. you're off the list. They got their list with the people that they want to get to star in their movies. And that's it. You're either on it or you're not. And if you're not, that's it. It's just the reality of the business. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a, a little bit better than the sports careers because I think, you know, uh, the average baseball career is about four years. I think, um, you know, I think if you, if you're talented and if you can create your own things, I think you can have a, you can make a nice career for yourself in the movie and TV business, but you have to work hard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not something just going to come to you. Uh, but as far as like, um, you know, that group from Saturday night live, we were friends before Saturday night live. So, I think that's what helped mm-hmm. was we kind of got there and dealt with the lunacy without eating each other. Mm-hmm. You know, you have people who are very, who really want to make it because they're, they have some deep psychic need for um, whatever approval and whatever acceptance they think they lack or didn't get. Mm-hmm. 
which is both one and the same. And so th- there's that tendency because you see this the crazy success in show business. Once you get in it, it's just, it's there. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, it's not that far removed from me getting that. And um, so it could alter you and change you. And it, and it does. I mean, it does the effects of it, uh, especially for people who are susceptible to being manipulated by the, you know, it, it's, it's very seductive. Sure. And so the guys that you knew when, and the guys that you know before, uh, <laughs> they can call you on it and say, hey, man, you're the same guy I knew as, uh, you know, who was working at, uh, as a busboy and blah, blah, blah. Right. And it's also good because, truthfully, when you can share success with somebody, it's really fun. I mean, the, the best memories I have at, at Saturday Night Live is being in a sketch with Chris Farley, uh, being in a sketch right across from Adam Sandler, and the audience was laughing so hard, screaming, laughing that you couldn't barely hear each other. And we were two feet away from each other Yeah, yeah. or seeing like when something's really working, like David Spade's sketch, bye-bye, you know, on the airlines, bye-bye, bye-bye, <laughs> bye-bye, bye-bye. Something like a little idea like that. That's a, that you can, you know, have fun for three, four minutes and then that's it. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's all you need. You know, at the end of those, those times, it, it to me, it, it really is. I was talking to, Dennis Miller the other day, we're just realizing like how special those times were. Right. When you're in your fifties, now you understand how special and beautiful that was. But at the, when you're just going through it, you're thinking about, you know, you have to have that kind of hunger and that, that drive. And, but you have to be very careful that, 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 that hunger and that drive can also be destructive. If it's only that mm-hmm. you have to, the thing that keeps it going to me. And like, if I had to say why well, Adam Sandler has continued to be, you know, a success for 30 years in this is he's the joy. He genuinely enjoys what he's doing. And there's, there's genuinely like, he's still excited about a good joke. Like, oh, you know, yeah. and I see him jump out of his chair when he has an idea for something. And you have to maintain that. It, it just can't be, you can't treat this like a, a, a like a normal business, like construction or plumbing. <laughs> Where's this from? Oh, it's from Borneo. It's for a Sulawesi puberty ritual. It symbolizes the journey into adulthood. Really? Yeah, and you put your weed in here. So this has actually been used in puberty rituals? Yeah, and you put your weed in there. Thanks. No problem. Let's talk a little bit about Chris Farley. You mentioned his name, and and, and if you're going down the list of possible funniest Saturday Night Live performers ever. He was the most explosive guy ever on that show. I would say Belushi uh, was, you know, he was very influenced by Belushi. As a matter of fact, when Bill Murray was on, Bill Murray did not like Chris Farley. Really? No, did not at all because he just saw him as just absorbing too much of the, of that John Belushi thing. And also I think maybe he was even worried about him. Cause like, that's not a thing you need to, you shouldn't be, that's not a guy that you should be looking up to too much. Cause you know, he was gone at, and I think they both passed about the same year. So yeah, same I age. don't know if it was a mixture. It was a definitely a mixture of dislike and worry. He was explosive. I mean, the, the first time I ever heard about uh, Chris Farley in the same sentence was from an actor who I don't like very much. And I, I'm not going to mention his name, mm. but he told me, oh, yeah, this guy's coming here to SNL next year, Chris Farley, but he's not going to live very long. And I was like, what a horrible thing to say. Right. At the same time, he knew, you know, this guy was reckless. And this guy It's funny because I never knew anybody who had dabbled in um in drugs, really. I mean, there was some of it. There was like cocaine 
in San Francisco in the eighties, God knows. Sure. Of course. But, uh, there wasn't like none of those people I felt very few of them had enough money to get in trouble with it, but it was some people that had obviously had some issues with cocaine, uh, in San Francisco, even though, you know, there's a, he had a proclivity for it. Still the, the idea that it would get to a dangerous place, just, you know, I just didn't, it wasn't part of my experience. Mm-hmm. I would say that like, sometimes like he would come to, he would come to one day he came in Monday after the weekend and he had like 40 stitches on his arm. And I'm like, well, what happened? Well, I got in a fight with a little lady. Next thing you know, the, the elbow goes through the window. And I went like, wow, <laughs> it's like a war wound, you know? Yeah. And uh, he just lived at a higher frequency. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think he would have really, really, really enjoyed to be around and like slow down a little bit, buddy. And mm-hmm. it's going to get better. I promise you. It can't be New Year's Eve every night, you know? Right. I wasn't mature enough at that time and wasn't knowledgeable enough at that time to be really of any help, Mm -hmm. sadly, you know? And certainly when he took off after the show, I had no contact with him. I only saw him a few times. And I remember specifically one time there was a party and I knew that, you know, he was off the wagon. And I said, well, if I go to that party, it's going to be more or less you know, condoning his, you know, actions, yeah. drinking. And so I said, I, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And then now, now I feel bad that that was a, uh, one of the last opportunities I had the chance to see him. Mm-hmm. So I think it's sad. I think it's something that uh, was deep rooted in him, the addiction. If it would have been, it could have been, it's easy to say would have, could have, but like, I think if he was cut off from his work completely, mm-hmm and say, look, no, 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 no one's going to work with you. You can't make any more money. You have no more money to do drugs, just blah, blah, blah. And I think, I mean, but it's all second guessing, but I, I do think that at least should have been tried. I mean, it was very upsetting. It still is upsetting to know that, um, there were companies still making movies with him, right? Knowing that he was, I mean, they, they tried to, I mean, I don't think that they knew it and uh, they tried to cover their, you know, their movie expense mm-hmm. in the sense of, or, or the, the risk by having a 24 hour guard. The truth of the matter was, he, you know, it was a game for Chris at a certain point, he'd wait for the guard to go to the bathroom yeah, and, you know, outside and then he would go. So again, it's, it's addiction. And it's also, um, I think Chris had a feeling of invulnerability, which, you know, young people do have. Sure. When you're a kid. Yeah. But, but we, we still remember though, him, I mean, that's to me, the sadness part is, is, is there now, but like explosively funny. Yeah. Whereas yeah. nobody would commit harder yeah. <laughs> and nobody would commit more often. And he was constantly committing wherever he was. I mean, the thing about Chris was if you were at lunch with him, he would be all out commit. He'd be out a thousand percent. He never turned off. He wasn't like, he didn't have an off button. He was just constantly <laughs> on. I remember my mother yelling at me when my child was, Robert, when do you turn off? You know, <laughs> and like for, for Chris, he was just, I mean, the first time I ever had dinner with him, I was just telling the story the other day and we went to Joe's, which was at Joe's was actually a Mexican restaurant. It was called Joe's Mexican restaurant. Should have been called Jose's Mexican restaurant, but he jumped on the table and like he was drinking beers and he had 11 shots almost as many beers. And at the end of the evening, he was on the table with his shirt off dancing. And I was dying laughing 
But I also, everyone else in the restaurant was horrified <laughs> because it wasn't a famous Chris Farley back then. He wasn't famous then. Yeah. He was just, a, he was just a naked fat guy <laughs> right. on a, dancing on a table drunk. Yeah. He had magic. I will say that like for those who, you know, luckily the Chris Rock got to make a movie with him. Mm -hmm. One of his last movies, Beverly Hills Ninja and Norm MacDonald got to make a movie with him. He got to be, which is probably his best acting performance ever was in 30. What's, what's the Norm MacDonald movie? Um, Dirty Work? Dirty Work. Is that the one? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah. And that's his best. I mean, that's his best acting for me. You, get, you know, it was really like, I, I, the rumor I heard was that David Mamet wanted him to be in, um, to play Fatty Arbuckle. And there's never, yes, there's never been a real good Fatty Arbuckle st a movie that I, I, I don't think, and I think it would have been, he would have been absolutely perfect in it because a very, very likable guy. I mean, you talk about like Fatty Arbuckle for your people who are, uh, your listeners who are under a thousand years old. <laughs> Fatty Arbuckle was as popular in the 1920s as in the teens as, um, Charlie Chaplin mm -hmm. was like the most popular guy in the world. And then an incident happened. I think it was 1921 up in San Francisco where some, some girl died at a party and then, which had nothing to do with him. And, um, because he was the big famous guy that San Francisco Chronicle just destroyed him. Mm. And he, they then went to court and he got cleared and then he went to court again and got cleared, but his career was over. And like, literally like, um, Buster Keaton said, you should change your name to will be good. You know? But he never never worked again. But yeah. so, but the story is phenomenally interesting, and and the story that's the most interesting part of it is the press losing their mind going after somebody, right? And the prosecutor, and um, it would have been something that that he would have been able to tell uh, from like because every, everybody knows how likable and, and lovable Chris was, and it was the same thing with Fatty Arbuckle, right? Hey, what are you throwing money in there for? Well, you're a street musician, right? Yeah. So? So I'm giving you money. I'm an artist. <laughs> I'm not doing this for money. Well, then why do you have change in there? Well, this is where I keep my change. <laughs> in my guitar case. There's no law against it. Okay. Ow. Please give me money. job this is what i do for a living please give me money or i will starve here go ahead and take it you need it more than me what the hell did i just say well you said that you're an artist and you're not doing this for money that's right yes but then you started singing and you said you needed the money or you'll starve so please that's just a song man talking a little bit more about uh, about snl from from your experiences I mean, obviously, you had some great characters. You even kind of referenced it a bit in the special when you're putting the whipped cream on your junk and it's Rob, the Robinator, the Rob oh, yeah, Meister. Yeah. I mean, that was one of those ones that everybody was imitating in the early 90s. Yeah, you never know what's going to hit. You don't. If you do so. Good point. At that, at that point, if something does hit, people are always looking for something funny. Yeah. People are always something, you know, there's somebody in the office when we used to be able to go in the same office with everybody, yeah, you know, they, people are looking for something to do. And if it strikes their, hits their funny bone, it does. And that was the strength of that show was, you know, the coming up with something funny that people could talk about the next day. And it was just amazing. 
I remember doing like sketches and going to the little grocery store in New York and hearing somebody in the grocery store doing one of our bits from the night before. And they didn't even know I was in the store. Yeah. That was a thrill, but it was also kind of frightening at the same time to know the reach of that show. Mm -hmm. And then like the fame, I mean, just becoming famous was, was a trip because not being famous and then being famous was very weird. Something that you want, but at the same time, not realizing like the ramifications of it. Mm -hmm. And and that's why it is tough for people because they don't like, I think the NBA is pretty good about like, Hey, listen, guys, you're in the big leagues now. You got to like, we're going to have a guy managing this, some of the stuff with your social media and things. You got to like, blah, 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 and clean some stuff up and uh, be careful out there. But like, uh, you know, when you're a young actor, a young comedian, you're on Saturday night live, boom, famous. Yeah. Go handle it. Cause you're also too, like you're pitching these characters and, and you're, you're doing your best to kind of become a featured performer. Cause no one's really writing stuff just for you. Correct. No, 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 nobody wrote that. No, you had to write your own stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyone who survived there and thrived there had to write their own material. We knew that going in. And, uh, they said, if you can write some stuff that's, uh, that you can do better than other people, then, um, We'll let you do it. Otherwise, you got to give it to these other great performers like, uh, you know, Dana Carvey, mm-hmm. Phil Hartman. So these guys were the best. Those are guys that never made a mistake. Really? Never. On air. They never flubbed a line. Phil Hartman was, uh, they called him the glue because he would literally like stick bits, he stick sketches together, you know, that he's never going to, he's always going to come through. Did you, uh, like when you first came in, were those guys, did they help you out at all? Or was yeah, it- but I don't know how happy they were to be there. I mean, Dana was always the greatest guy, but I don't know how happy like all the other cast members were, you know, we were there to take their place. They knew it. And we knew it. Right. We're here to push you guys out. Hi, you want to have lunch? <laughs> you know, right. so, and, and that was like an unspoken thing. Like, Hey, the new cast is coming in. Mm-hmm. Get that out. But, you know, you have to do it with, with, you have to have some grace about it. And I, I spent my four years there, but I was, I was ready to go when I left, but it was, it was great. You know, it's the, it's the great, it's one of the greatest times, one of the greatest times of my life. And for better or worse, it made me famous. It made me famous and you kind of get typecast. It's very tough in America to break out of the typecast. But as you know, if you're typecast as a funny guy, that that's not a bad thing. Well, yeah, especially with all the different roles that you can play and all the imitations that you do and all the different voices that you have. Yeah, I don't know what they, what they you know I don't know what they're going to let you do anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So I don't know. What about when you started doing? Uh, once again, another huge catchphrase that comes completely from you that everyone says all the time: of it. "You can do it." Like, well, I didn't even know what it was. I mean, I I knew that <laughs> it was um, you know from the movie The Water Boy. Yeah. I, Adam said, would you want to come out and do this one line? And they said, well, we'll do it in some different ways and it could be funny. And I didn't really understand what it was, but I got out there and I said, oh, okay, I think I can get this. Just hit it different ways and make it fun. And it was just something like Adam's genius about making sure that each scene has a good button in and out, make sure that each scene is like a little mini movie and then giving them something, you know, the candy of like something funny happening constantly. And I just remember like, he was doing this um, this one scene in The Water Boy. You know, he's having a serious moment with the coach, and he gets he's upset and he picks up a baseball, throws it out the window, and out the window, and it hits the guy who looks like the Colonel from Kentucky Fried Chicken in the head. But it just gave the energy to get you through that like slightly dramatic moment to the next. It was like you know, brilliant stuff like that. 
There's no one who works harder. There's just no one. I, I just really committed to that. And it got big laughs. And we ended up, you know, shooting a tag at the end of the movie where I say it again, where he goes off in the wedding. You know, you can do it all night long. And then it was just it was <laughs> such a funny movie. It had such a good spirit to it where the underdog guy. Yeah. And I think it's one of his better, one of his, one of his best because it's, it's such a sweet movie. I think that wedding singer, 51st dates, all those ones are really sweet. Yeah. Interestingly though, the Harold Lloyd estate sued and because Harold Lloyd had, 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 had done a movie, I think it was called the freshman or something or where he played a, um, a guy who joined the team and uh, you know, but it was a different movie, but you can't claim a guy who, you know, who's a water boy that becomes the football team is the same, but it's interesting though, because um, that movie worked really well. And Adam was, was great in it. And the football players were great. They really committed hard to it. You know, one guy broke his leg hitting it. I mean, these guys really, when they went to hit, they really, they committed. But what, what accent is that for the, you can do it. <laughs> this is supposed to be. I don't know. I was just my, Goofy committing to something because we felt it's supposed to be Cajun. So I was trying to do something, but like, <laughs> it was just something. Yeah. I try to do, keep the impressions as vague as possible. So people don't get that upset at me, but you've done that now in like 10, 15 Adam Sandler movies. I know. I know that's it. We're not going to do it anymore, but we, we, um, we had a good run there and, and hopefully we'll, we'll do a few more, but like, you know, I, I just worry about wearing out your welcome. There's a great thing. I, I try to live by this. Like there's a, there's a great thing where you do. Oh, there's that guy. It's very short time between. Oh no, there's that guy again. <laughs> right. You know, so you want to you want to get out before the the ladder. Sharks are like dogs. They only bite when you touch their private parts. Okay. Hey, that's a good title for my documentary. Sharks, they only bite when you touch their private parts. Or you could call it sharks. They tried to eat my kidney. <laughs> All right, enough already. You too, Willie. Oh, just cast a spell on us. <laughs> You've also done a lot of uh, voiceovers in, in, in you know animated films and you know the Doctor Doolittle's and all that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, I like coming in. I'm, we're about to do another one pretty soon for the Adam Sandler's company, and I like the idea of of, um, of committing something just in in the idea where. You can create something then, and they have to draw it exactly the way you do it because mm-hmm. it, it can be done great. I think that like, truthfully, the, the most amazing movies that are made now are animated. I really be- believe that. I think Pixar, when they say like the, the golden era of, uh, of movies in the thirties or, or the, you know, for the auteur directors, the seventies. But I, I think right now, I think in the last, definitely the last, you know, decade and stuff. I mean, these, the animated movies are, are to me, the, the incredible. And, and certainly, you know, as Charlie Chaplin said, we, I can't compete with cartoons because they can fall off a cliff and get smashed and then bounce <laughs> yeah, back right, up. Right. But I do think like, if you look at Pixar and just see the movie Wall-E, it's just, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's emotional and, and, and gorgeous. And, and, uh, and then you see like, you know, Frozen 2 is better than Frozen 1. Frozen Frozen <laughs> yes. 1 was, you know, beautiful. So I do think that there's a, and, and I think with all this uh, fear of uh, people's personal safety, I think there's going to be even more explosion of more animated stuff. 
Well, you're right, because you can make all those movies basically on your computer by yourself if you had to, right? With a few thousand of your friends. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny, too, because you mentioned on the special you have two young children again now. Yeah. And my kids are teenagers, but when they were – you see every single animated movie from the years of about 3 to 10, because that's one thing you can do with the kids where they want to go to this one, they want to go to that one. So you see them all within that time frame. Yeah. No, you do. (laughs) <laughs> it's really important to like, you can get some enjoyment out of these. And I got to say that, like, I think they've never been better. I think the time, the cartoons and stuff, and they were not, we were growing up in the seventies and eighties mm-hmm. were terrible. But I, I think that Disney kind of came in with some really amazing stuff with Eisner mm-hmm. back in, in the, you know, uh, in the early nineties, it just made a difference. And, and then uh, with Pixar, I mean, that, that was like an $11 billion acquisition that has already paid off you know, many times over for Disney. I hope Disney continues to do good. I know they're struggling right now with their theme parks and their boats being closed. Who would have ever thought that that would be a vulnerability, a theme park? (laughs) Yeah, right. But anyway, I I think things will turn around. I hope people get sick of, um, and and want to get back to their normal way and get get tired of it, you know, get tired of uh, not being allowed to go places. Well, yeah, especially when, you know, if you're talking about from a show business aspect, even like from wrestling, we're wrestling in front of no people, Show business, movies, there's no work for any crew, actors, you know, musicians. At a certain point, you know, you're going to safety us into starving, you know? Yeah. I'm an adult. I realize that there are 55 to 58,000 Americans that die in a car every year. And uh, I'm not equating cars with this virus at all. But I'm saying, though, is that there are innate risks. You know, at one point, is the government just going to come in and go like, I'm thinking about going parasailing. I don't know, Rob. (laughs) I don't know. There's a one in 28,000 chance that you might hit the rocks over there and you're in Mexico. (laughs) So that's basically a one in 12 chance now. (laughs) So uh, at the end of the day, though, it's just a very frustrating time where, you know, when people get attacked for expressing how they feel about anything, anything, if if it steps out of the the accepted narrative, it's, it's a very much... You know, a closed-minded fundamentalist thinking that is that has a religious indoctrination to it. You know, it has a religious architecture in their thinking. It does. It really does. How long is it before comedians can start using COVID material in their act? Because there's a lot of comedy there for sure. Well, I think you have to. I mean, I mean, first of all, we got to get back on stage. Yeah. But I mean, I, if I was going out, that's the last thing I'd want to hear. I don't hear anything about this. <laughs> yeah, Please tell, right. tell me anything else. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it will get back. I mean, I cannot imagine that people aren't sick, completely sick of staying home, sick of not being able to go out to places. Agreed. And get healthy. I mean, that's one thing about we all have to take our, our health responsibly, which is good. I mean, that's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. We as a, as a nation, the United States has, um, you know, 25% of the obesity of the world in a, in a population that has 5% of the world's population. So, I mean, there's a personal responsibility for, for each of us to get in as best health as we can. If every American was in, its, you know, was in your shape, Jericho, you know, <laughs> you never go to the doctor except when you, when you have your, your neck displaced <laughs> by some other wrestler. But, but right, you're healthy. And that's what Eminem and your kids are healthy because you, you know, they learn from you. Yeah. Uh, speaking of kids, as we start to wind down here, there's, uh, your specials, re- it's great because it's really funny. And then you have the piano guy noodling in the back, which is cool. Just to paraphrase, a couple of years ago, I went and saw Hart and Joan Jett, and the opening act was the, uh, a girl called Elle King. Yeah. 
And she killed it. She's a great singer, great rock and roll vibe, whiskey voice type thing. And then I find out she's Schneider's daughter. I'm like, wow, I had no idea. Yeah. And she actually comes out on, on your, on your show. But I mean, that's, it's actually really cool. Cause you mentioned something. I used to be Rob Schneider. Now I'm L King's father. Where did this all come from? Well, she, I can't claim any for her talent at all or credit <laughs> for it. She's a really dogged, hardworking artist and she's a great singer and a, very soulful human being mm-hmm. and she just puts it all into it. And I was like, she's been nice enough to, you know, to share her success and let me come along to see her backstage <laughs> opening for heart at the Hollywood bowl. It was just phenomenal to be there. Yeah. And then, you know, the, I said, I, I got this comedy special I'm doing and who knows if I'll ever get another one. Why don't you come out and let's do something together. And she said, okay, we'll sing a song. And I, she said, I'll pick the song. She picked the song because she knew that I knew it. She said, well, that one, I know you can sing that one. <laughs> Which song was it? I listened to it, but I didn't recognize it. In Dreams. In Dreams. And uh, so we did that. And she, and she was supposed to sing more of the song. But if you ever see it again, she just she's pointing me the whole time going like, you, yeah. you do this part. You do that part. You're, you're singing the lead, man. And the, so, I mean, she was supposed to do it, but I, you know, but she did great. And then you can just tell in our harmony that it was, it was, it was very emotional. Yeah. Seeing the dad and daughter sing. I mean, I felt it while we were doing it. Well, and you can sing too. You, you, you had some good range. It was great. It was fun. I, I, the, those, my, the chance of me being a singer is, was, was as many years behind me. <laughs> I'm just happy to be doing uh, stand up and having a comedy special out. And I hope people get a chance to see it and like it. How is it for you kind of being in show business for so many years and having your daughter come in? Does it make you more protective? Are you helping her out, leaving her alone? She didn't want any of my advice at all. And I think she just wanted to set her, she's like, enough of being a famous person's kid. Let me just do my own thing. Mm-hmm. I got my, I got this figured out. And, and she's, you know, it's, it's not easy. And um, she doesn't have it figured out. She's, she's, but she's got to do her own path. And like, none of us have it figured out. But she's got her own ideas of what she wants to do. And it's getting more clear to her as she goes. And she's been doing it for 10 years now. I mean, she's been an, an artist and successful for, a decade and now she's, you know, she's had a massive hit X's and O's and that's tough to duplicate, yeah. you know, for, yeah. for anybody. I mean, I had, uh, you know, when Deuce Bigelow made $300 million, <laughs> it was like, well, I get the next one to make 300 million. I don't know. <laughs> it's like catching lightning in a jug twice. Mm-hmm. It's tough, but if anybody can do it, she can, she's really talented. And so she, I said, why don't you come out and we'll, um, We'll do something. She said, so she wanted to, and, and it was fun. And then it's the last time either of us ever performed because it was February 29th. And, then, and she said to me the other day, it's really, really beautiful. She said, well, if that's the last time I ever performed. At least it was with my dad. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah that's so really good. Cool. April, I need you so bad right now. You have no idea. How do you know my name? It's me. Jessica. <laughs> I'm in here. Last few questions for you. I did three seconds of research as I always do. And did you used to own the DNA lounge in San Francisco? Yeah. Well, we played there. You played there. Yeah, we played there. Yeah. I have a a band and we played there back in 2013. It was great. Oh my goodness. It's still there, huh? Well, it was in 2013, 2014 is when we played there. So it might not be now. It was really tough to own a club in San Francisco because every little warehouses being turned into apartments and then they would complain about the noise and it's like hey asshole you moved here 
You knew about the noise. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's why you wanted to come here. So now you're complaining. And so the city did not help us out there. And it was like, I was an idiot and let people know that I was one of the owners with my family there. So anytime somebody dropped a drink that we get sued and oh. it was like, a, it was a, a, honestly a sinkhole of money. Right. Some tech guy bought it and it was like happy. And then they wanted to close it. So we had to have a hearing at the city to keep the place open so that we could sell it so that I could lose money. <laughs> and uh, so I got rid of it. it it's honestly, um, it was, it was a nice place. I mean, Prince played there. Wow. And you played there. You know, we had um, Harry Dean Stanton and I had a great drunken evening one night there. He stayed up till four o'clock in the morning. He was playing all night until the audience left. He wouldn't get off the stage and the audience is gone. I said, Harry, let's wrap this up, baby. <laughs> it's Hayes. Any place we can go out and drink. And I went like, I got to go to bed, man. It's four. I'm tired. I love you. But like, you know, 10 to four, that's kind of like, that's a shift. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. But like hanging out, I mean, just guys like that, and you know, hearing him telling stories about Brando, like, it's unbelievable. It's, it's been a wild ride and uh, I hope it continues. But like getting to work with guys like Harry Dean and Harvey Keitel and Sylvester Stallone, I mean, it just doesn't get any better. Who was your favorite host uh, that came to SNL when you were working there? I loved Harvey Keitel. He's just the nicest guy. He was great. I mean, the guys who were probably the best comedic performers were obviously Tom Hanks and Alec Baldwin. Those guys are those guys were talented enough to be in the original cast, which is the best compliment I could give to a comic actor. Right. You know, I mean, it was just there was so many group of good guys would come in, um, and the musical hosts were incredible. I mean, the, the musical guests were incredible. Yeah. You know, just to hear Neil Young singing, I mean, like and playing guitar. It was unbelievable. I remember I was running, doing a quick change, getting from one costume to the next. And then I just heard Neil Young playing and singing uh, on this harvest moon. And I said, you know what? I got to stop and enjoy this for a minute. I'll never forget that moment. Those things like that. Then I remember like one time um, I was in nine sketches. I was in every sketch. I was wow. like the go-to yeah. guy that week. I remember like I was just did a quick change. The musical guest was up there. Then I, I did the change and I did this bit that always gets a laugh. It's like a little quick move, you know, where and it always gets a laugh and it didn't get a laugh. And I went like, Ooh, something's going on here in the audience, you know? And then the next sketch was kind of like, Ooh. And I said, well, what happened? I was changing. So I didn't realize like the musical guest ripped up a picture of the Pope. It was a Sinead O'Connor, right? Sinead O'Connor. Sinead O'Connor ripped up a picture of the Pope. And I'm like, I didn't know until after the show. Cause I was like, quick change, getting like, <laughs> a hair piece on and a, and a beard and like fake eyeballs or whatever. So <laughs> yeah. I didn't know what was happening until after the show. And then it, it caused quite a, a stir. I mean, it didn't take much. It doesn't take much to cause a stir, but like ripping up a picture of the Pope took a, that would work. People that'll do it. That'll be one of the things that'll piss people off. Hey, at least you didn't bomb. You thought you were bombing, but it was just the, uh, well, I mean, I mean, I know certain tricks after you've been doing this a few years, yeah. you know, certain tricks, you know, you know, like, you know, certain tricks are always going to work. Yeah. And so if it doesn't work, you go, something's going on here. <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, it, those were the, the times I remember the most. Uh, that And, yeah. you know, Lorne Michaels is a dream maker. I mean, he makes people's dreams over there. It's just quite, yeah. quite a phenomenon. And it's still doing good. So I, I hope it continues. Last question for you. What's your favorite movie that you ever made? Um, you know, I, I really want to say, I mean, it's be corny to say this, but it's true. That, that I'm always excited about the next one. Mm -hmm. literally 
I mean, I got this new movie idea that we've been working on for a few months now. And I really think it could be the best one I ever made. That's it. I mean, 50 First Dates was a lot of fun. The movie that a lot of people didn't get a chance to see where I, I worked probably my hardest I ever worked on was Big Stan because I was 40 trying to do a martial arts movie. Oh. <laughs> and it was like seven months of, 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 of training. And, you know, my friend said to me, you're never going to be in this good shape again. And he was right. Big Stan. <laughs> Big Stan if you get a chance to see that. And um, The Hot Chick's probably my funniest movie. And Deuce Bigelow's, you know, is most popular. I liked uh, the animal was always one that made me laugh. Oh, oh, thank you. That, that mostly good movie. It's got like, it was tough to pull that off completely, but yeah, there's some good physical stuff in that. I was the greatest shape of my life. That one through, through, and big stand was, just, I had a yoga instructor, oh, yeah. a weight trainer and a strength conditioner. And I threw my back out first day of filming. I did a stunt and I couldn't get off the ground. <laughs> That's it. You know, when you get hurt, you're just, so I was, I got up and I was gray and the producer, Barry Bernardi said, okay, we're in trouble. So he, he <laughs> my trainer was friends with Shaquille O'Neal and he called Shaq and he says, uh, who's that Chinese guy that you got? And there was this, um, this little Chinese man came to my house. who's an acupuncturist and he did this thing called cupping. This guy, he fixed me and literally was, did this cupping. You ever had that? You've had that done, right? A lot of the guys uh, in Japan in the locker room get that done. Yeah, you've never had it done? I have had it done, yeah. Yeah. They suck your skin up into the cup and get the bad blood out sort of thing. Get the bad blood out. And it works, right? Yeah. It totally works. And, you know, we, I figured you would know what that is. Yeah, absolutely. So they were just like, basically, it was an old wound from a skiing injury where I fell like literally 40 feet. Jeez. And I landed on my back. It was spring skiing, so it was a little icy. Right. And I, I, I remember I, I cracked my back. And so I knew this is going to come back. And so my back was just, up. but he took this old injury out. And that's what's good about it. It's basically, he called it static blood or bad blood. Yeah. And then uh, Dr. Shen, and it, you know, uh, Shaquille O'Neal talks about it in his book. And he took this thing out. It's like this goo that came out. It looked like stuff that was, um, you know, the top of pudding and not to get too gross. And it was like this, this dead skin in there, this dead blood. The next day I was fine. I was able to do the movie. I would not have been able to have done that without Dr. Shen. See, and I went to him like many times. Dr. Shen was uh, amazing. Great guy. Also would charge me more than like, he would charge like another guy, <laughs> 75 bucks or 35 bucks. If you were a girl, he charged you 35 bucks. If you were a guy, 75. If you were famous, he would charge me $1,500 to do the same shit for a guy for 75 bucks. Finally, one of the person who worked for him said, you know, Shen's overcharging you a lot. Right. right. And I said, oh, man. But he also, like, for me, you know, he figured, you know, he looked at me like, ah, he's got it. Hey, you're too spigolo. Come on. Come on, man. You got the money. You're the animal. You got this. You got <laughs> yeah, this shit. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I did. So maybe he was right. He did fix me. So I own that. That's the bottom line, right? How much is a back after all? How much is your back worth? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Dude, it's great talking to you, man. And uh, congrats on the special. It's very funny. Asian wives, Mexican kids. Thank you, Jericho. I appreciate it, man. It's been fun. And uh, I appreciate you having me. Continued success and health for you. Same to you, man. Hopefully we'll get to see you down the road somewhere soon. I'm sorry I couldn't figure out that other stuff. I mean, I have nobody here to help me out. I got nobody. I got nobody. Got no assistant can work right now. No one. We're, we're creative guys. We're not techs, man. We're not tech. That's why as soon as you couldn't get it rolling, I called my producer, Stacey. I'm like, can you please help us? Because I don't know what to do. I don't know if I'm doing it wrong, if he's doing it wrong, if we're both doing it wrong. So it worked out. I'm so, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad we got something <laughs> yeah. there. You can cut this down to a good eight minutes. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It was about four and a half. 
Exactly. <laughs> Once we finish the you can do it stuff, the rest just get rid of it. We're good. Appreciate it. I will. Thanks, brother. Take care, man. Thank you. Take care. Bye now. Tom. Tom May. Hey, Richard. I'm just making some copies. The Tomster. Tom Man. Tom Tom. How you doing, Richard? The Tomster. Making copies. Mr. Tom. Tom May. Yeah. See ya. Tom. Yeah.